Happy Wednesday night to you, church family. Uh, let me invite you to get your copy of the scripture and turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Now, I'm going to do something tonight that uh, obviously I'm going to have to put some of this back off on you to read, but let me challenge you to read chapters 6 through 8. Again, I won't try to read all of that. I'm just going to pick some uh, verses out of chapter 6 mainly to read. Uh, I was reading Joshua and Judges both, studying both books while I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I wanted to bring a message tonight to you on Gideon. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, God using small things and using our weakness. And the story of Gideon is certainly a story of that. And so I want to talk to you tonight on the subject matter God's strength made perfect in our weakness. God's strength made perfect in our weakness. And uh, I hope you found your copy of God's Word. Uh, let me say before we begin, we're looking so forward to regathering this weekend. We understand, we understand fully that some of you are not quite ready, and that's fine. We encourage you to continue to watch online. And then there's others, perhaps some in the church on chemo treatments and things of that nature. Uh, you probably should not be getting out in public. Uh, but with those exceptions, if you're willing and able to get out and come to church with us this weekend, we hope to see you uh, in the sanctuary. Remember, we're asking uh, on your way in and out and anytime you're moving around in the sanctuary to have a mask on. Uh, we'll also be doing temperature checks. But uh, pray for this weekend service as we try, try to regather as best we can at this time. Let me pick up reading in verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock in their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the uh, Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. 
When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. I'm going to stop there, but again, I'm going to ask you in your time to continue to read this chapter and also chapters 7 and 8, and uh, you'll understand better some of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight. You know, as we look at this passage tonight in the book of, of Judges, if it were not for our own tendencies, it would become so easy for us to get angry with these people. They've gone back to their old ways once again. If you were to go back and reread the, the book of Judges all the way up to chapter 6, you would see that this is now the fourth time that they have entered into this suffering and sin cycle before God sends them a deliverer. I want to remind you of a, a phrase that Charles Spurgeon used to say. God never allows his children to sin successfully. He always chastens us. And so they would sin and they would go into a time of suffering and and there would be peoples who would oppress them, and they would live under that oppress, oppression, and then they would finally get tired of it. They would cry out to God, and God would deliver them once again, and then they would get complacent. And then they would go into a time of suffering once again and oppression. And again, this is the fourth time this has happened now. I want you to notice that God is disciplining his children. God's people are experiencing this hardship. They're hiding. Their produce is being ravaged. Obviously, in a culture that depended on livestock and crops, what the Midianites were doing to Israel was devastating for Israel. The Midianites were a desert people and they had discovered the use of camels in warfare. Camels can travel for about three to four days, also about 300 miles, with a load on their back with no food or water. They also have pretty good speed. Interestingly enough, America experimented with the use of camels in warfare against the Indians, but shelved the project when the Civil War broke out. Anyway, the Midianites would swoop down like locusts at harvest time and raid Israel and steal all of the food and swiftly disappear back into the desert. They did this for seven years. Israel is reduced to hiding in caves. 
Folks, we've gone from the children of Israel marching around Jericho and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down to now they're hiding like slaves in their own land. This is the bondage that sin brings. Don't ever buy into Satan's lie that if you disobey God and go your own way, you're going to be free. You're not going to be free. You're going to end up in bondage. Now, what did they do? They cried out to God. This time, however, God doesn't automatically just send them a deliverer. First, you'll notice in the text that I read, God sent them a prophet. This prophet told them the truth. That's what a true prophet does. He tells the truth, whatever God has told him to speak. It was what they needed to hear. A preacher doesn't tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Shame on those who simply preach what people want to hear. God's man here in verse 8 reminds them why they are suffering. They have sinned. God did all these wonderful things in Israel in leading them out of Egypt. And you would, you would expect that they would have honored God and followed him and lived lives of gratitude and worship to God. But what have they done? They've gone their own way. And so first, God sends a prophet and confronts them. He wants them to see what they've done. Next, he graciously sends them another judge. Now today, we're going to see that the next judge that God raised up was a man by the name of Gideon. And we're going to learn that God doesn't always use the strongest or the person that we might assume is, is the most likely God chooses the weak things of the world. Just read the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise so that people won't stand back and be able to say, look at what we've done. You know, if God only chose the strongest, the most capable, the smartest, what would people do? They would take the credit for it. But God sometimes chooses the weakest, the most unlikely, so that everybody has to recognize it's God who has done the delivering. It's God who has worked his work. And that way, all the glory goes to God. Well, the first thing I want you to see tonight from uh, verse 11 down through verse 24 is the privilege of experiencing God's call. God visits Gideon. Gideon is a picture of total defeat. He is hiding in a wine press. He's beating out wheat. That is, he's separating the husk from the grain. And he's doing so in secret. And yet, look at what God says to him in verse 12. It says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I'm reminded of, of a story about an 18-year-old boy in 1855. He went to the deacons of a church in Boston. He had been raised in a Unitarian church 
and almost total ignorance of the gospel, but when he had moved to Boston to make his fortune, he began attending a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church. In April of 1855, his Sunday school teacher had come into the store where he was working and, and simply and persuasively shared the gospel and urged the young man to respond. Well, he did. And now the time had come that he apply for church membership. Back then, they did things a little differently. It was, it was more of an intensive period of, of application in some churches. Well, he interviewed with the deacons. And as he did so, one fact stood out. This young man was ignorant of just about all Bible truth. One of the deacons asked him, Son, what has Christ done for all of us, for you? What's Christ done for you? Which entitles uh, you and I to be in his family, to be, to be his children. What, what has he done? And this young man responded, I, I don't know. I, you know, I think Christ has done a great deal for us, but... As far as being real specific or detailed, I, I can't really give you an answer. So it was hardly an impressive start for this young man. He just did not have many answers. Years later, his Sunday school teacher said of him, I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think the committee of, of the church seldom met an applicant for membership who seemed more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of, of gospel truth, still less to fill any space of public and extended usefulness. So his Sunday school teacher is saying right there, he, he was not a very good candidate if we were simply testing him on his knowledge as a new believer. Again, keep in mind, this young man had unfortunately grown up in a church that just didn't preach much of the Bible. Well, the deacons decided to put this young man off for another year so he could learn more about the Bible, and they would meet with him again and once again interview him about potential church membership. Besides this, they thought, in that year where he's learning the Bible a little better, perhaps we can get him to work on his grammar. He had terrible grammar. Well, at his second interview a year later, there wasn't a great deal of improvement, but they accepted him finally into the membership of the church because they could see that his commitment to the Lord was very strong. They could not argue with his passion that he had for the Lord, and he, he knew enough of the basics. They, they believed he was a, a genuine believer, uh, but again, just needing a lot more knowledge, but they accepted him. Well, God ended up using this unlikely candidate in tremendous ways. The young man that I'm speaking of is D.L. Moody, 
who became the Billy Graham of his day. And God used D.L. Moody in major ways, in phenomenal ways. But again, he was a very unlikely candidate to begin with. Folks, God doesn't simply see us as we are, but what God knows he will eventually do in us and through us. I think of Abraham. Here was a man aged, but without a child. But God knew that he was going to bless Abraham and Sarah with a child and use them in mighty ways to begin a, a nation. He was Simon Peter, a fisherman. Jesus said, your name is Simon, but you shall be Peter, a rock. Again, God doesn't simply see us as we are, but what we will one day become through his grace and power. Folks, that's the story of Gideon. Now notice what Gideon begins doing right off. Gideon begins questioning God. If God is with us, why are our circumstances so bad? Where is the God of our fathers that, that our ancestors, our fathers have told us about? Where's that God that delivered them? You know, obviously Gideon has things backwards. He's blaming God. He cannot see that it's actually the sin of his people that have brought them to this point. You know, it's sometimes easier to blame God and others, isn't it? Rather than to take personal responsibility. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. Once they sinned, when God confronted them, uh, they began blaming one another. Eve, uh, or excuse me, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. They started the blame game rather than taking responsibility for their sin. That's how a lot of people are. They start blaming and questioning God, and that's what Gideon is doing here. What we see, I think, is the depths to which Gideon and his people are demoralized. They've been defeated time and time again, and they feel hopeless. You know, it's sad to be in a position where you feel like God doesn't seem to care anymore. It seems like all hope is gone. In times like that, you and I need to see that God is still on his throne and he's still working, and God has a plan. Are you going through a tough time in your life right now? You need to see that God's still on his throne. And God has a plan through that hardship. God has a, it, it may be that God is disciplining you and chastening you. If so, God has a plan through that discipline and chastening. Gideon felt small. He felt insignificant, but that's okay. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. 
Think about what Paul says there. We have this treasure in earthenware vessels. Now, notice beginning in verse 17 that Gideon asked for a sign. Now, the result of this encounter with God is that Gideon builds an altar. The lesson here is that before you serve God, you need to worship God. As part of your calling and my calling, Worship needs to be a constant in our lives. We serve God out of the overflow of our worship. So he builds an altar and he worships God. Second thing I want you to see with me, the need to display courage, beginning there in verse 25. I guess you've learned by now that if you're going to really live a life that counts for Christ in this world today, you're going to have to display some courage. I think of Daniel and Daniel's three friends and the courage that they displayed. Well, Gideon displays that courage too. He tears down the altar of Baal. Now, folks, this was a monumental moment. Gideon is drawing a line in the sand, so to speak. He's taking a public stand for the God of Israel. To deliver the nation from the Midianites and from Baalism, he first had to destroy Baal in his own backyard. Isn't that the way God works? We have to deal with things in our own life. We can't have a divided life. Now, notice that Gideon was afraid, but still he obeyed. We may be afraid, but we have to trust God and act in obedience to what he's told us to do. Notice how mad Gideon's people around him got when they saw that the altar of this false god had been torn down and destroyed. They really had a twisted perspective. They are willing to completely turn their backs on the true and the living God and they are ready to kill for some false god that is responsible for the oppression they're, that they're in in the first place. You know, that reminds me of many in America today. Many have forsaken God, and they don't mind doing that. They don't mind living in disobedience to God. But let something that has become important to them get threatened. Something that might even be a blight on our nation. Let that be threatened or challenged and they'll, they'll become unglued. They'll get all angry about it. In other words, they'll throw God under the bus in a heartbeat, but don't you dare attack their sacred cows. I want you to notice Gideon's dad's actions. What Gideon did even brought his own dad around. Our obedience may encourage somebody else to take a bold stand. Don't ever forget that. Your obedience to God may be an inspiration for somebody else. I think of John Knox, that great Scottish reformer. In 1548, he was a prisoner on board a French slave ship, 
and he was chained to a rowing bench and lashed on constantly by the guards. He was there because of his preaching of the Word of God and his refusal to submit to Catholicism. One day, a lieutenant brought on board a wooden image of the Virgin Mary and demanded that all of the slaves kiss it. Knox refused. They rammed the little wooden statue into Knox's face. He grabbed it and he threw it into the sea. And he said, let our lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn to swim. When no divine judgment fell on John Knox, there were two things that happened as a result. Never again were believers required to engage in Catholic exercises against their wishes. And a second thing is men began to look at John Knox as their leader. Eventually, the Scottish Reformation broke out. You see, folks, one person can make a difference. Gideon's name was changed to mean Baal conqueror. Every time they saw him, they should have been reminded of the powerlessness of their false god, Baal. In verse 34 of chapter 6, look at, look at the Holy Spirit in Gideon's life. Let's, let's just read that verse together for a moment. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Asbizrites as to follow him. The Holy Spirit wore Gideon like a suit of clothes. You see, the word here is from a Hebrew word that means to wrap yourself, such as to wrap yourself in clothing or to wear clothing. The Holy Spirit came on Gideon that way. Dr. Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, told his students that every morning his prayer is, Lord, here I am. I want you to be, or, or I want to be your suit of clothes today. I want you to take me and use me. Lord, just walk around in me today. That's how the Holy Spirit did Gideon. He wore Gideon like a suit of clothes. He came upon Gideon in a powerful way. Three things so far set Gideon apart and gave him courage. He had a life-changing encounter with the Lord. He had obeyed thus far what he was asked to do. And the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily. Folks, those same three things are available to you and me today. An encounter with the Lord. An encounter with the Lord Jesus that transforms and changes our lives. An unswerving obedience to whatever God tells us in his word and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The third thing I want you to see with me, the necessity of dealing with doubt. The necessity of dealing with doubt beginning in verse 36. Here we have a very popular text in the Old Testament. Just about everybody has heard of Gideon putting out the fleece. Some pe sometimes people 
have even been encouraged to put out a fleece of their own. But I want to ask you tonight, is that the best way to seek out the mind, the heart, the will of God? I don't think it is the best way. I actually think this is a portion of this narrative that shows us the grace and the mercy of God, regardless of Gideon's weakness in dealing with his doubt. So rather than setting a pattern for you and me to follow, I think it just demonstrates how patient God is and how God deals with us in the midst of all of our doubts and weaknesses. The problem with Gideon's approach was that Gideon was not ignorant of God's will. I want you to think back with me through the narrative. God was as clear as he could possibly be. He commissioned Gideon, and he repeated that commission three times. You can read that in verse 12, in verse 14, and, and in verse 16. So three times. God has told Gideon what he wants him to know. The Lord has also given Gideon a clear revelation of himself, a theophany, the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon. The Lord also gave Gideon success in tearing down his father's altar to the false god Baal. And 32,000 men came to follow Gideon. Folks, that's confirmation that God was indeed with Gideon. So fleece setting was an evidence of doubt, not faith. What more could God have said that he had not already said? The problem is that Gideon would not or had not fully trusted God's word evidently because he's still asking for something more than God's word. On top of that, did you notice that putting out a fleece did not solve the problem? When God answered the first time, Gideon thought it might have just been a coincidence. And so he asked God to repeat the experiment, but this time with the opposite result. That's the danger of setting out a fleece. You start asking yourself, was that really God? You see, that's, that's the danger in a fleece. You can't really be certain. And so you need a second fleece to confirm the first one. That's a dangerous approach to take in trying to discern the will of God. You may know, for instance, that you're not right with somebody. And there's a, there's a red light near their house. You say, God, if that light changes red and stops me in front of their house, I'm going to take that as a sign from you that you want me to get out of my car and go in and speak to them. But if the light stays green, then I'm going to take that as a sign that I don't need to get right with that person. The light stays green. And so you conclude, well, I don't need to get right with that person. Well, that wouldn't be accurate at all because the Word of God tells us not only are we to be right with God, but we're to, we're to be right with our brothers and sisters. 
But you see, that's the danger again of trying to discover God's will with some type of fleece. We end up putting the experience of our fleece ahead of the very word of God. Gideon had the word of God to move forward with. That should have been enough. Again, God worked through all of this very patiently, very graciously with, with Gideon. And, and thank God he works with us patiently as well. But folks, as Christians, we need to seek more biblical approaches for discovering God's will. Let me give you a few. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but let's talk about a few. First of all, do you really want to know the will of God? Some Christians think they do, but when the chips are down, they may not be quite as committed to knowing the will of God as they think. You have to be willing. Write down John 7, 17. Jesus said, if anyone's will is to know the will of God... He will know my teaching. In other words, if you really want to know God's will, God knows your heart and he'll reveal more. Too often times, we're like a vagabond I read about. He was out hoboing across the country and someone asked him how he knew which direction he wanted to go in. He said, that's easy. I toss up this stick and I simply go in the direction that it points once it lands. And then he went on to say, sometimes I have to toss it up a half a dozen times to get it to point in the direction I want to go. Sometimes people are like that with the will of God. They've already made up their mind. They don't really want to know. Well, if you want to know, get to know God. How do you learn the likes and dislikes of, say, your best friend growing up? You spent time with that person. It's not rocket science. The whole Bible is God's love letter to us. How can we know God apart from it? By reading it, we will see how God has always dealt with people. We learn things that delighted the Lord, and we learn things that grieved the Lord. We see patterns of how he dealt with people. For instance, we see patterns of how he dealt with the Israelites. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, everything that happened to Israel is an example for us today. And so much of the will of God is, is simply stated in the word of God. For instance, if you're a Christian young person about to marry somebody who is not a believer, you can know that this is not God's will for your life because God says don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. I think the same thing would apply if it's a Christian businessman about to go in business with an unbeliever. The Word of God says don't be unequally yoked together. So if you want to know the will of God, get in God's word. Become familiar with his word. Become familiar with God and how God acts. Also pay attention to his commandments. Pay attention to his instructions to people. Learn from all of that. 
beyond that, seek the will of God. Ask God for understanding. God wants you and me to know his will more than we want it. James 1.5 says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Something else we could say, too, in discovering the will of God. Surrender yourself. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Get your heart right before God, and you'll be able to discern the will of God. Are you daily presenting yourself to God? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Are you refusing to be conformed to this world? If you're following what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says... The scripture says there that you will end up being able to test out and prove what God's will is. But again, that only comes after you've done what those two verses tell you to do. Still another way to discern the will of God. Look around you. What is, what is God doing in your heart and around you? What abilities do you have? What passions do you have? Now, obviously, God can give you gifts and talents that you don't naturally have. But a lot of times, God has equipped us all of our lives to do what he ends up wanting us to do. He's, he's gifted us in certain ways. And then one more thing I want to talk about. Surround yourself with godly Christian counselors. We all need the wisdom of mature believers. The book of Proverbs tells us in the multitude, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. So if you share your burden with some, some other believers who truly walk with God, and they say to you, I honestly don't see God leading you to do that, maybe you need to back up and take a second look at it. If you share that burden with them and they, and they say to you, we've known all along God was leading you in that direction. Maybe God's trying to use them in that regard to put confirmation into your heart as well. Do all of these things that I've suggested. Like I say, not, not an exhaustive list, but what I've indicated to you is certainly better than Gideon's approach of trying to put out a fleece and then having to put out another fleece to see if the first fleece was right or not. Fourth thing I want you to see, enjoying God's victory. Chapter 7. I'm not going to read this. I'm going to let you. I wish we had time, though, to, to go through this chapter in detail. But you remember the story God determines that there are too many men, too many fighting men with Gideon. If they fight and win the victory, their pride is going to get the better of them, and they're going to think they defeated the Midianites because of their own numbers and their own strength. And so God ends up doing something with Gideon's army, telling Gideon to, to see how they lap the water or drink the water, and God gets Gideon's group down to just 300 men. That's all. Can you imagine going into battle with just 300 men? But that's what God does. 
when the 300 go up against the Midianites and win, what's everybody going to know? Everybody's going to know that God has won this victory for Israel. And that's exactly what happens. There's a touching story in the middle of this narrative that I don't want to pass over too quickly. In verse 10 of chapter 7, God realizes that with Gideon's army now down to just 300 fighting men, Gideon might be a little bit afraid. So God sends Gideon one night down into the camp of the Midianites to spy on them and listen to what's being said. Gideon hears what the soldiers are saying and how one tells the other that God has given them into the hands of Gideon. Well, folks, that's all the encouragement that Gideon needs. He goes back to his fighting men. He rallies them. They end up blowing their trumpets, smashing their clay bars, uh, their, excuse me, their, their clay jars. Normally, you would only have one or maybe just a few trumpets and, and things of that nature. That's all an army would have. But with the 300 blowing their trumpets, smashing their clay jars, the Midianites think that they are massively outnumbered. I mean, they just think the numbers must be overpowering. If there's 300 trumpets being blown, this must be a huge, huge army that there's no way they can defeat. So when they hear these trumpets and these jars being smashed, it just throws the Midianite camp into confusion. They actually begin killing one another. In chapter 8, Gideon shows that he is a very good leader. When one group of Israelites gets angry that Gideon hasn't called on them to help, he reminds them of what they have done to help. He points out that what they have actually done was huge and that it was indispensable to the entire victory. He builds them up and encourages them and their anger subsides. So we see Gideon's wonderful people skills in stopping what could have been a devastating division among his own people. Again, folks, all of this just shows what God can do in a man's life. Gideon had thought that he was a nobody. But with God's call on his life and God's spirit on him, Gideon had become an entirely transformed person. Now, before the story is said and done, Gideon punishes those who would not help. Some people, want to, they want to stand on the sidelines and throw rocks at those in the battle. But then when it comes to take part in the celebration, they want to be there. Well, Gideon wasn't going to allow that. Again, it just shows the courage that God has given to Gideon. I wish we could say the story ended on this high note. Because, I mean, think about how wonderful that this is so far. And it ends up that the people want Gideon to rule over them. Gideon refuses and says, 
God's to be the one to rule over them. So what a great way to end. I wish it could have ended there. But then Gideon does something he shouldn't have done. Earlier in their history, the ephod was used in the worship of God. Well, Gideon takes some of their jewelry. He makes another ephod. I'm sure he meant well. He hoped the ephod would end up being, I guess, a tool, an instrument helping them to worship Jehovah God. But it didn't become that at all. It instead became an idol. It became an idol itself. Then when Gideon dies, they just go back to their old ways of serving their Canaanite gods, and they forget all about the family of Gideon and all the good that Gideon's done for them. How sad the way the story ends. But folks, this shows us something too, doesn't it? We have to constantly guard our hearts daily. Today's victories do not guarantee tomorrow's victories. While we are at home in this body and absent from the Lord, we battle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places in addition to spiritual warfare, we'll, we're still plagued by our old nature, and that calls for daily vigilance. Even people like Gideon need to be careful that they stay on course. I want to ask you tonight, are you like Gideon? Instead of looking at who you presently are, you need to look at what God can do in your life. Never underestimate what God can do in your life. If God's called you to do something, He'll give you the capability to do it. I want you to remember that tonight. Put your whole life in God's hands and say, God, whatever it is that you want to do with me, here I am. Maybe there's some pagan altars in your own life you need to tear down just like Gideon had to tear down the altar to Baal that his dad had there's some things maybe particularly close to you that you know God is not pleased with and before you can go out and serve him the way he wants you to serve him and have the influence that he wants you to have you've got to deal with those problems close to home at your own heart Maybe you've been concentrating too much on your own weakness and thinking about what you can't do. Concentrate instead on God's strength. Maybe also you're where Gideon was at the end of his life. You had some victories earlier on in your life, but maybe you've not guarded your heart. So today you need to begin afresh and anew. Remember, we serve a God of a second chance. And praise the Lord for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these chapters in the book of Judges that speak to us so powerfully about your ability to take weak things and use weak vessels 
in a tremendous way. God, may we not be discouraged about our smallness or whatever we think about ourselves that we can't do certain things that we know we should be doing for you. Help us to instead reflect on you and your power. God, help us to take you at your word and not look for additional things, fleeces, to try to discern what your will may be. May, you, may we take you at your word. May we respond in obedience. And God, even after we've won victories, help us to be careful that we not become complacent again and give the enemy a foothold like he may have had before. Help us to live life to your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.